This week I came across an article uh, that was titled, Famous Rejection Letters. Famous Rejection Letters. Uh, For instance, uh, Marvel Comics Group sent this rejection letter to a guy named Mr. Lee. Mr. Lee. Your work looks as if it were done by four different people. That's not a compliment, right? Uh, The rest of the pencils are of much weaker quality. Uh, The same can be said for your inking. Resubmit when your work is consistent and when you have learned to draw hands. Got to learn to draw the hands if you want to work for us. Uh, that, That Mr. Lee is Jim Lee who is now the co-publisher of DC Entertainment. He's one of the top uh, comic uh, artists, I mean, in the country. And he specializes in intricate detail, especially drawing hands and Jim Lee. But he was rejected. Uh, Now, for those who maybe like a little higher style of literature, there's a guy named John uh, Steinbeck. Uh, John Steinbeck's novel was first rejected. We have decided not to publish your novel, the seminal American masterwork of the Great Depression, The Grapes of Wrath. And then the, the person from Penguin Books said, I'm afraid that this extremely famous and enormously successful book is just not what we're looking for right now. Now just pause there for just a minute. <coughs> what are they looking for? <laughs> right? Uh, and... Uh, you'll have to find some other publishing house, just not this one. So, oops. And then, and then there's one. This is really interesting. This is addressed to Mr. Uh, Paul Hewson, Mr. P. Hewson. Uh, it's, uh, Dear Mr. Hewson, thank you for submitting your tape. This was a music group. Uh, we have listened to your, with careful consideration, not suitable for us. Good luck. All right. Mr. Hewson, is, do you know who he is? Bono, all right, let that one go, didn't they, huh? My goodness. So, I mean, uh, most people, either in literature or music, who make it, I mean, almost all of them can tell you about rejection. I wish I had time to tell you the story about John Grisham, who's a famous legal thriller writer. Um, 25 rejection letters before his very first uh, novel, uh, legal thriller, A Time to Kill, uh, was, was published and became a hit. But it's just uh, rejection letter after rejection letter, and we hear these stories, and you know, we nod and admire those whose path to success was paved with failure, and we even agree, yeah, that, yeah that's how it works. Yeah, that's how it works. Okay, we agree with it, that's how it works. But, okay, how do we apply that to the ministry of parenting. When it comes to parenting and building strong families, how do we prepare our children for the inevitable failures of life? How can we mobilize them for success by teaching them about failure? So I want to talk about giving our children the gift of failure. The gift of failure. That's where I'm going today. And I just want to answer two questions. The first question is why? Why would we want, why should we teach our children about failure? Why would I want to do that? And then the second question is how? How do I do that? Why would I want to teach them about failure? And then secondly, uh, how do I teach them about failure? Why and how? First, the why. 
Why should we teach our children about failure? Now, Henry Cloud has kind of been one of my go-to uh, authors, especially this fall, uh, under the topics of leadership and in our series on 1 Timothy. And it applies here to f- family building as well. And in his book, Integrity, he told about a session, a parenting session uh, that he had. It was a seminar. And uh, after the topic of um, uh, rearing children with successful character was discussed, after his talk, there was a Q&A time. And uh, during the Q&A time, a mother raised her hand and said, you know, Dr. Cloud, if you could tell parents what one thing is the most important thing to teach your children about success, what would it be? And immediately, without even blinking, Henry Cloud said, failure. I would teach them about failure. Now, on the one hand, that doesn't make too much sense, does it? Why would I want to give my child the gift of failure? Why would I want them to be thinking about failure? Because if they're thinking about the possibility of failure, then, you know, it, then they're thinking about it, and, and it become, may become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, and uh, I, I, is that really such a good idea? But Henry Cloud said, I would teach them how to fail. And the mother said, why would I want to do that? And Henry Cloud replied, because they will. Failure is a reality. Listen to this quote. I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. On 26 occasions, I've been entrusted to take the game-winning shot, and I've missed. I have failed over and over and over again in my life, and that's precisely why I succeed. Michael Jordan. Not everybody makes varsity. Not everybody who makes varsity makes the first team. Not everybody who makes the first team makes the winning team. Not everybody who gets straight A's gets into their college of choice. And not everybody gets straight A's. And not everyone who gets into their college of choice gets that job or gets that promotion. Not everybody scores that touchdown. Not everybody wins state. Not everyone achieves material success. People fail. In sports, in academics, in business, in relationships, in planting churches. The failure rate for planting churches, heartbreaking. People fail. They fail to pass their tests. They fail to pass their boards. They fail in their health. They fail at home. Why teach our children about failure? Because they will. We have to let them ride their bicycles with the training wheels off. And whenever you take the training wheels off, there's a risk of falling and breaking a bone, bruising. But if we don't remove the training wheels, then they're never going to learn how to really ride. And if the training wheels don't come off, then the gift we give them is a false sense of mastery. Psychologist Jonathan Haid had this hypothetical exercise. Imagine that you have a child, and for five minutes, you're given a script of what that child's life is going to be like. Only you get an eraser, and you can edit it. You can take out whatever you want. So you read that your child is going to have a learning disability in grade school. Reading, which comes easily for some kids, will be laborious for yours. 
In high school, your child will make a great circle of friends, a wonderful circle, but then one of those friends will die in a car accident. After high school, this child will actually get into college, and they're the one that they want to attend. But while they were, are there, there'll be another car accident, and your child will lose a, a leg and go through severe depression. A few years later, your child will get a great job, a great job, and then lose that job in an economic downturn. Your child will get married, and, but then go through it. The grief of separation. And you get this script for your child's life, and you've got five minutes to edit it. What would you erase? I mean, wouldn't it make sense to take out all the stuff that causes pain? Is that really a good idea? Are you sure that a pain-free life would cause your child to grow up to be a better, stronger, more generous person? Is it possible that in some mysterious way, people actually need adversity and setbacks and failures, maybe even like some trauma, to reach the fullest level of development and growth? What if the secret to success is failure? See, It really gets us thinking about, you know, how success happens and you know, for so many, often we think of success this way. You know, just one uninterrupted triumph after another. What people think it looks like. And we, you know better than that. It's more like this, isn't it? Isn't it? But we just, you know. Jessica Leahy has written a wonderful book called The Gift of Failure. She said, we've taught our kids to fear failure, and in doing so, we have blocked the surest and clearest path to their success. Out of love, out of love to protect our children's self-esteem, we've bulldozed every uncomfortable bump and obstacle out of their way, clearing the manicured path we hoped would lead to success and happiness. Unfortunately, in doing so, we have deprived our children of the most important lessons of childhood, the setbacks, the mistakes, the miscalculations, and the failures we have shoved out of our children's way are the very experiences that teach them how to be resourceful and persistent and gritty and innovative and, and resilient citizens in a harsh world. The Apostle Paul understood the reality of failure and loss. And because he understood this reality, he also understood its purpose. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. There it is. That's failure. That's loss. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death. And here's the purpose. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So failure is a reality. 
It's a reality, though, to help us rely on the God who raises the dead. Most of us here are familiar with um, the Old Testament account in 1 Samuel 17 about David and Goliath and how before David took the field, King Saul of Israel, you know, really said, no, you're not ready to do this. 1 Samuel 17, 33, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you are but a youth. He's been a man of war from his youth. And you recall what David said to Saul. Well, your servant used to keep sheep for his flock. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant struck down both lions and bears, and and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the, the paw, the hand of this Philistine. That's impressive. We read that and we say, yeah, go David. Well, why, why can we see that about David? Why can we see that David learned to trust God in the thick of things as a boy with a lion and a bear? Yet we don't think our children can do that either. And and what's worse, we set a life before our children that doesn't even require faith. We we give a capable standard that casts them on their own resources, turning them away from the cross. Archibald Hart is a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, and he uh, he wrote an excellent piece on... uh, Theology of failure. Theology of failure. When you read the word theology, um, the word theology simply means what God thinks about. What God thinks about. What God thinks about failure. Here's what he wrote. God's God's not in the failure business and God's not in the success business. God's not one bit interested in feeding our egos. Whether we feel successful or not, God has no interest in that. He really doesn't. God's not in the success business. God is not in the failure business. God is in the refining business. He's in the business of refining us, our children, into becoming what it is He wants them to become. That's why Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, gold that perishes even though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and, and this word test in 1 Peter 1 is the word refine. And it takes us to how they did it in the first century. Which was this way. High heat, long period of time equals pure gold. And so what should we do with failure? We receive it as a gift from God. And that changes my attitude. 
It's not a, something that's devastating to my identity or my destiny. Actually, it has everything to do with my destiny. God transforming me into the person that he wants me to be. Yes, of course, God can use success to refine our character. But you and I both know that his finest work is often done when in a moment of catastrophic loss, he takes it and transforms it and purifies us with it. And that, knowing that now allows me to enter into it with hope. Someone once asked Winston Churchill, what most prepared you to stare Hitler in the face and lead Great Britain through World War II? And Winston Churchill said, it was the time that I repeated a class in grade school. The interviewer said, you, you mean you flunked a grade? I never flunked in my life. I was merely given a second opportunity to get it right. <laughs> See? Why do we need to teach them about failure? Because they will. Failure's a reality, but it's a reality. It's a reality that leads us to rely upon the God who raises the dead. That's why. So let's talk about the how in the time that remains. How do we teach our children about failure? Well, I have three lessons on your outline, all right? And here's lesson number one. How do we teach our children about failure? Number one, it's a lesson for the head. Let them. Let them. So my older son, this almost 28-year-old, broad-shouldered police officer, strong. And he was a grade schooler at Westview Elementary. Calls home. Mom, I forgot my lunch. Can you bring it? More precisely, he should have said, I forgot my lunch again. <laughs> Can you bring it? And Sarah had, you know. But not that day. No, sweetheart, I'm, I'm so sorry, I can't. But mom, you're only four blocks. We only live four blocks from Westview. I know, sweetheart, I know, but no, I'm not, you're going to have to eat at the cafeteria today. Long, silent pause. But I don't want to eat at the cafeteria because I don't like the food at the cafeteria, Mom. I know, sweetheart, but you're not going to bring, no, honey, I'm not, but Mom, I want you to, not... honey, I got to go. I love you. Goodbye. Click, you know. <laughs> <laughs> now it killed Sarah to do that you know it would not have killed me to do that right? <laughs> Just, she's, she's a much better parent than I am alright <laughs> lots of luck kid <laughs> oh 
mobilize you all right. Anyway. <laughs> oh, how do we teach them about failure? Let them. Hey, you know what? It worked, though. It worked. So your child gets cut from the team. Your child's team gets eliminated from the tournament. Before you storm the coach's office, perhaps we should just let the law stand. Or your child gets an 89 instead of a 90. And before you fire off a nasty note to the principal, let the 89 stand. Your child forgets the homework and the assignment doesn't count. Before you march off to the parent-teacher conference looking like Wolverine from the X-Men, you let your child deal with it. Let your child contact the teacher. Your child doesn't get into the college of choice. Your child has a falling out with a friend. They come home and there's lots of drama. Let them feel it and let them deal with it. Let them. And when you get involved, and, and you should, ask this question. And here it is. Well, did we learn anything? Did we learn anything? And, and, if, and I, I would implore you to ask it that way because, you know, that, that's the right question and it's phrased the right way. It, see, the, the right question phrased the wrong way sounds like this. Well, why didn't you? Or why couldn't you? Or why don't you? Well, that line of questioning, it doesn't work with our children. It doesn't work with adults. But when you ask, did we learn anything? See, what, you know, you may not always win, but you can always learn. So what did we learn? What did we learn about ourselves? What did we learn about our preparation habits? What did we learn about our study skills? What did we learn about our athletic abilities? What did we learn about our team? What did we learn about our limits and capacities? You know what? You may just give it your all, 100% on the court or on the field, and you can still get beat. It happens. And you can say, what could I have done better? I mean, I gave it my all, but we didn't win. You know what? People who give it their all sometimes still don't win. And that's, the, that's why they call it a contest. That's why they call it a competition. And you can live with that. You can. You, you give it all. They gave it their all. Sometimes, sometimes we give it our best and we still get beat simply because they're just better. <laughs> they're just better. Have the reasons for the loss been examined, understood, and learned from? And uh, author in the business sector named Jim Collins from his book, From Good to Great, he calls this an autopsy without blame in that you just really go through and think through and talk through and examine and understand and how, what education can I get from this? I'm not going to blame anybody. I just want to learn what did we learn? What sets apart those who succeed and those who don't is not that winners never lose. It's that winners lose less in the future and they don't lose the same way that they lost the last time. 
because they have learned from the loss and they don't repeat the pattern. But those who perpetually fail do so because they carry the loss or the pattern ahead into the next venture or the next game or the next relationship. And then they repeat the same way of losing. And so after maybe a courtship breakup, you know, you, you, you think, well, you know, why, why do all my relationships end up the same way? Because they start the same way. Did we do any learning? Lesson number one, let them. Lesson number two, reassure them. That's a, that's a lesson for the heart. Reassure them. You know, I'm a sap. I get emotional every time I watch that movie, Searching for Bobby Fisher. It's a true, based on a true story about ch a chess prodigy, Josh Waitzkin. And he's just this little guy. Man, can he play chess. He's so good. He's winning and going to become a grandmaster and and once Josh kind of starts winning, and his dad, you know, really, he starts winning vicariously through his son until his son loses. And his dad takes it really hard, even harder than Josh, right? And my favorite scene is this really tense scene where Josh's parents are arguing with one another. It's one of those you know, you know, a closed door bedroom arguments, but you can hear it out in the living room. And they're arguing, and because Josh's dad is going, well, he's, you know, he's he's become weak and he's he's become afraid of losing. And and his mom says, He is not afraid of losing, he's afraid of losing your love. Our children need reassurance. At all age levels, this type of reassurance doesn't go away when they leave home. It doesn't. Brothers in Christ here in this room, you who are fathers, you have, your tongue has the power of life and death over the hearts of your children. It doesn't matter if they're 8 or 18 or 28. Right now, a word from you, dads, to your sons and daughters. You can resurrect their soul more than you know, more than you think. We need to assure them on an emotional level that our love remains steadfast. And, and that it's more important for them to do their best than it is for them to be the best. Let them, reassure them, and then lesson number three, inspire them. Inspire them. That's a lesson for their eyes. You know, we give them a lesson for their head. What did we learn? We give them a lesson for their heart. How can we reassure them of our love? We've got to give them, we to give them a vision for their eyes of what success is from God's point of view. So your family's mission is to mobilize them to display God's love to a broken world. 
So you see, when we go on these missions trips, when we do service opportunities locally, internationally, what do you think is going on here? We're, we're, our goal is not just to put string together uh, you know, a, a bunch of do-gooder activities. That's really not our purpose. Our purpose is to passionately pursue Christ. And when our children get involved in family ministry, God, we are praying that God will just grip their heart and give them a calling for the sake of the gospel. You know, we keep talking about passionately, pursue Christ, about passionately pursuing Christ. And you know, some of them will to places that terrify you. Or to a life that, that you know, will not lead to the kind of affluence that we enjoy here. But success in God's eyes is about letting God have His way with His child who has been temporarily in your custody. In the Old Testament, God spoke to the prophet Ezekiel. Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel. To a nation of rebels who have rebelled against me, they and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. Impudent. That doesn't sound good. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus saith the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. Now, what if Ezekiel were your child? People will not listen to him. People will try to intimidate her. Your child wins no popularity contest. You know, their ministry, their vocation, by human standards, will be counted a failure. Ezekiel reminds me that God does not keep score the way we do. You see, ultimately to God, success is faithfulness and displaying his love to others. And you know, your child may very well be called by God to a vocation similar to Ezekiel's. And know this, if and when that happens, God will equip your child just like he equipped Ezekiel because he does not he, those whom he calls, he equips. That's how he works. You see, God had promised Ezekiel that though the Israelites were stubborn, God would make Ezekiel more stubborn. Ezekiel 3, 7 through 9. But the people of Israel won't listen to you any more than they listen to me. For the whole lot of them are hard-hearted and stubborn. But look, I have made you as obstinate and hard-hearted as they are. I have made your forehead as hard as the hardest rock. Now, for some of you parents, the light bulb just went on. <laughs> right? Oh, that's why my child is so stubborn. She's going to be a prophet. Okay. <laughs> okay. 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 You never know. You never know. Her forehead is God's forehead. The hands are God's hands. The voice is God's voice. Being called to God's purposes, which go beyond this life.
which go beyond this life. We do not have to survive this world. I tell you, the world saw the crucifixion differently than how God saw it. Jesus' death on the cross, a slave's death, was the ultimate failure in the eyes of the world. And yet from the foolishness and weakness of crucifixion, God transformed this loss into a power that enables us to be with him when we take Jesus into our lives. And the Apostle Paul knew this, which is why, once again, he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, he, he, he tells us about success and failure and how God defines it. Paul says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And oh, the joy of seeing this in the life of our children. Because once they taste it, once they taste it, they're not going back. Oh, no. Let them, reassure them, inspire them. Give them a vision. Listen, the cross and the empty tomb are God's final words about success and failure. And the cross will always come. Good Friday always comes before Resurrection Sunday. Always. Cultivating a heart for God is the hardest thing that a human can do. It really is. It's especially in our children. And wise is the parent who realizes that, you know, there is no hope, no hope apart from Christ. And if I could, if I could turn the hearts of my sons to God by the force of my voice or the strength of my personality or the logic of my argument or the shrewdness of my parenting strategies, if, if I could do all that, Jesus would never have needed to come. But, you know, in parenting, you just realize, you do, you hit a wall, right? I cannot do this by myself. And, you know, I get frustrated, I get angry, I get discouraged, I want an instant fix. Just, God, give me three quick fixes to self-parenting sons. But the Bible doesn't offer that. The Bible does not offer three quick fixes. The Bible offers a Redeemer, a Savior. And here's the really scary news, and there's just no way around it. No matter how righteously I act with my sons, they must deal with God or there's no hope for them. No matter how many years I'm your pastor, no matter how many mission trips I attend, no matter how disciplined my, my prayer and scripture reading time, they must deal with God or there's no hope. And, and you know, what I do in my frustration is I, I, try, to do, I try to do God's job with His sons. <laughs> And I try to be the Holy Spirit. 
And I try to lay guilt on, and I try to think of everything I do to try to manipulate and change. But you know what? Only God can turn the human heart. And at some point, I need to realize that as a parent, that my children must internalize this, or they'll never turn out to actually love and need God. What I'm trying to say is that I and we need to accept our helplessness. And once we accept our helplessness, you know, then we can go before the Lord and, and stop trying to be God, which I'm lousy at, and instead make myself available as an instrument of God. And when that finally clicks, when that finally clicks, then I'm able to just get down on my knees and cry out to God, I need help. I need grace. I need mercy. I need love. I can't change their hearts. God, I can't even change my own heart. God, will you change me? And this is the mystery of it, church. That as I'm pleading with the God of this universe, and I start with my heart, then then he works in and through me because he's just as concerned about my heart as he is the heart of my sons. And then I can begin to interpret failure through God's point of view. I can begin to deal with loss through God's point of view. And then I will glory in my clayness because I know that the treasure of the gospel is burning brightly so that you don't even notice the clay. All you notice is the gospel. That's what we want.